0: We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinary medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Welcome to Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. This is the place to talk about your pets and get advice from the top veterinarian from the Animal Medical Center in NYC. Hear from the leading authorities on animals and give us a call to ask your questions. Now, here's your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus.
1: Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me today on Ask the here on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. I'm a board-certified internal medicine specialist and oncologist at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center here in New York City, where your sh- the show is coming from. AMC is the largest not-for-profit animal hospital in the world. And thanks to our partnership with SiriusXM Radio, Ask the Vet is also a podcast, and you can download it on any major podcast platform where you get your regular podcast. Just hunt for Ask the Vet. At the Animal Medical Center, we keep families together by providing the absolute best care for pets. Now, later in the show today, I'm going to answer questions from our listeners. But if you have a question from about a pet, You can call and leave us a toll-free message, and I will answer your questions on next month's Ask the Vet program. The number to call is 866-993-8267. And if you don't have a pencil to write that down, don't worry. I'm going to give that number again later on in the show. And now for our trending animal of the month. It's time
0: for the internet's most talked about animal.
1: A tiny Jack Russell terrier named Patron has captured the hearts of people all around the world for his heroic life saving work in the Ukraine. Patron, the Ukrainian bomb sniffing dog, and his handler, Mikhailo Yev of the Civil Protection Service in the Ukraine were awarded a Medal of Honor from the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He was awarded for their extraordinary service to the country. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was also on hand for the award ceremony. Patron, whose name means ammo in Ukraine, is credited with detecting more than 200 undetonated explosive devices. He was adorned in a pint-sized protective vest and has become an international symbol of patriotism for the Ukrainian people. His exceptionally sweet appearance has catapulted him to a social media platform sensation. When patron isn't sniffing out explosives, he's out in the community doing charity work or playing and running around with other dogs or eating his favorite treat, cheese. Just Google patron, the Ukrainian hero dog, to get more information and see photos of this terrific Jack Russell Terrier. It's such a pleasure today to welcome my special guest and fellow Cornelian, Bill Shute, to Ask the Vet. Dr. Shute is an emeritus professor of biology at Long Island University Post and a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History. American Museum of Natural History is one of my most favorite places because I will confess that that is where I had my first date with my husband, and we went to look at Chinese uh, dinosaur skeletons um, and used to spend a lot of Friday nights there when the museum was open late. Dr. Schutt has also written several fascinating books, and today we're going to talk about his most recent nonfiction book, Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Uh, Dr. Schutt was born in New York City and raised on Long Island by parents who encouraged his passion for the natural world. He received a PhD in zoology from Cornell and held the postdoctoral fellowship at the American Museum of Natural History, where he also received a Theodore Roosevelt Memorial grant dr schutt has published dozens of articles on topics ranging from terrestrial locomotion in vampire bats to the precarious arboreal copulation behavior of the marsupial mouse his research has been featured in the new york times newsday discover and the economist we have to go back to that how does the zoologist get in the economist he's currently working on a new nonfiction book on teeth. And I've suggested that he come back for dental week and talk about that book. And he's also finished a, the first draft of his solo novel. Welcome to Ask the Vet today. Bill, I'm so glad that you could join me.
2: All righty. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: So uh, let's say this isn't in the list of questions I'm supposed to ask you, but how did you end up in The Economist?
2: Um, if I recall it, it was. I was keeping vampire bats um, at Cornell for the first time in, I, I think, about 30 years. And, and um, I was at a mammology conference, and a, and a reporter um, for The Economist happened to be there and and, and heard about what I was doing and, and, and interviewed me.
1: They really interesting that they would think it would be interesting and important to write about vampire bats, um, which I think would be terrific to write about. Um, you know, I have an undergraduate degree and, and because I wanted to go to veterinary school, I couldn't be a zoologist and I couldn't be a bio major because going to veterinary school requires a lot of chemistry, physics, and math. And so I have a very artsy-fartsy degree called natural science uh, in order to meet the requirements to go to veterinary school, because otherwise I probably would have been a zoologist, except that you couldn't meet the, ma- the requirements for that major and still meet the requirements to apply to veterinary school. So anyway, back to um, your background and topic. So your parents were supportive in your love of nature. So was your like garage or your porch or your kitchen like full of cages and bins um. of animals?
2: Um. I, I don't know if I would describe it like that. I think it was a little bit more organized. so for example, my father who was a was a, was a milkman came home one day and and my mother and I had bought a squirrel monkey and um, his response to that was he he thought the cage was too small it was a it's sort of a glorified parrot cage. He said you're gonna have to do something about that. so I wound up building a cage and and I really wasn't a builder, so i I, I tried to find something that that looked to be right about the right size so i I took the measurements of a phone booth and built a cage in the middle of our living room. And that's where Googie lived for five years. Um, But I had boa constrictors and lizards and and we always had a dog. We've always had birds. So I guess the answer to the question is yeah, I I did have a lot of pets.
1: So I'm intrigued because monkeys are very smart. And how did you keep this squirrel monkey in the cage. Because if you weren't much of a builder, I'm going to guess that the squirrel monkey could figure out the flaws in your building technique. No,
2: it was tight. Um, <laughs> I, got, I got I got a lot of help. They weren't going to allow me to put something into the living room unless it was, you know, this beautifully stained cherry wood with with a drawer. And so, um, so so my parents helped me out, and my father was quite uh quite handy. But um, yeah, it was really interesting. That he never Googie never tried to get out. And that my mother named him. That was Cookie uh, was short for Guggenheimer, um, and um, we used to take him on walks. I would get quite a few looks walking down the street with a with a monkey on a leash. That's a good way to get some attention. But uh, he was he he was fun.
1: And then, so was he your most interesting pet? Or do you think there was something better than a monkey? I'm kind of, I'm thinking there's not much better than a monkey as a pet.
2: Well, I worked in a lot of pet shops, and I wound up. Uh, um, having piranha for a number of years and, and they were kind of interesting they're, they're not as they're really light sensitive and they're quite timid um but but that's another I, i've had fish. so working in pet shops i was able to go to the wholesalers and 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 see really kinds of neat freshwater fish um and and wind up bringing a lot of them home um, so i i've had a, i've always had tropical aquaria and and so i, I would say lungfish and piranha with a with the two most interesting non-mammals that I've had.
1: And our piranha, so you said they're timid. So yeah. how do they get, I don't know, I'm thinking I watch, the no discovery channel. People be eaten right and left by piranhas. Yeah. Is that a fallacy?
2: Most people don't get bit by them. Um, it's a matter of, I mean, if you, if there's blood in the water, then they, they sort of go into a frenzy, but when you've got one or two of them in a, um in a, um, in an aquarium situation that you don't want to put a light on because they just get, you know, they'll just go slamming into the glass. Um, but they were, um, you know, unless you were another smaller piranha, the, the, they were pretty timid. And if that was the case, if, if it wasn't the case, then they would eat the smaller one. Um, but but I mean, I've had much more aggressive fish than, uh, than piranhas were.
1: Oh, we had an African three-toed frog. And that thing was, like, my husband said, I think I think the fish must be jumping out of the fish tank. We got to get a lid for it. I said, have you looked at the frog lately? The frog is looking really plump. And yeah. Froggy just demolished a million dollars worth of very pretty fish that were in this tank. And this frog lived forever, absolutely forever. And one time he got this thing under his tongue. You could see it when he opened his mouth. And I was like, he's being an oncologist. So I was like, oh, Froggy has a tumor. And my husband said, let's get someone who knows more about frogs than you do. And so our, one of our exotic specialists said, oh, it's probably got infection in his mouth. So we had to get Froggy out of the tank, weigh him in a plastic box on the kitchen scale, and then get a teeny tiny dose of antibiotics to inject into Froggy's fanny. And that it went away and he lived three, four more years. And I I think Froggy finally just died of old age um, and probably fatness. I mean, he was, he was eight. Robust frog, let me tell you. Uh, he lived, he probably lived six to eight years. Um, nice. So he, he was a, he was a terrific frog. I had a so, hedgehog once. That was another. Oh, really- I love, we love hedgehogs. We yeah, see hedgehogs at true. the Animal Medical Center with uh, postpartum hypocalcemia, mm. and they get very shaky because their calcium is too low because they're nursing babies. And um, it's really hard to take care of animals that roll up into a ball every time you try and touch them. Uh, but we, we don't we see a fair number of hedgehogs uh, here as pets. I think they're really cute when they unroll themselves.
2: Oh, yeah. This one's name was Evanrude because, I mean, you know the noises that they make and it sounds like a little motor
1: yeah and and the, the um, I think they kind of look like a kitchen scrubber when they're all balled up, but they've got a cute little nose and face. So zoology came naturally to you?
2: Yeah, I think initially, you know, when I grew up, I was watching uh, you know wild Kingdom and, uh, and the Jacques Cousteau specials. It wasn't like it is today where you can just you know turn on a science channel. Um, and so I, I was really impressed by Jacques Cousteau. I thought I wanted to be a marine science uh, scientist. Um, and wound up studying it for about a year and a half at Southampton College, where, where years later I taught. But, um, but I, somewhere along the way, I got convinced that as an undergrad, I should probably diversify a bit more and then specialize once I went into grad schools. So I switched over to, uh, to, to organismal biology and then went on to study that uh, for a master's degree at SUNY Geneseo. And then years later, went back to school. And um, when I was accepted to Cornell, I, I thought that I was going to be working with a with a professor there on on ichthyosaurs, uh, but one of his graduate students sort of pinned me against the wall uh, out in the hallway and said, "No, don't do it, don't do it." And uh, she became a really good friend of mine. But luckily, I wound up working with uh, with John Hermanson in the vet school at Cornell, who was in the field of bio- of zoology, and his um, his love was bats, and 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 so I started working on bats and with. Among the 1,400 or so species of bats, nobody was really surprised when I picked the three vampires to uh, to, to do my research on, and I was really lucky uh, because at that time, you know, I was at Cornell from '90 90 to '95. The I'd say 95 percent of everything that that was known about vampire bats was known about one species, and the other two were, were turned out to be an open book because a lot of people, and and I'm, I won't name names, but but there were a lot of scientists who were the, the, the attitude was like a vampire bat is a vampire bat is a vampire bat what you know about one, you know, the others are going to be the same. And, and that just turned out not to be the case. And a couple of old timers took me aside when I said, you know, th- these animals are living in the same, th- these two species are living in the same place. And you've got this concept of competitive exclusion where if you have, say, two vampire species living in one area, then, then one is either going to go extinct or it's going to adapt or it's going to, it's going to move away. And, and that wasn't the case. So I was able to show that there were big differences between these, the, the common vampire bat, which is the one that you see on, on TV and, and elsewhere, fed mostly on large terrestrial mammals. Whereas the white wing vampire bat, which I was lucky enough to collect and bring back to Cornell, fed on birds. And that's how they sort of partitioned the, uh, um, the the resources. So from there, it turned into, you know, once I saw those behavioral differences, then, then it turned into anatomy and, uh, and and evolution, how vampire bats evolved. And eventually that turned into my first book uh, on blood feeding creatures, Dark Banquet.
1: Oh, I, I now I've missed that particular one. But I will tell you that I read um, a pump from cover to cover. And um, I think that this is something that lots of people can really relate to because all people have hearts and hearts cause a lot of problems uh, for people. Um, and so your book really covers the the kind of funky hearts that worms have all the way up to like hearts that are as big as a golf cart, which would be found in something like a blue whale. Um, so can you share some of your favorite stories from that book?
2: Yeah. Um, the, first off, I was really surprised when i was asked to write a book about the heart because i'd written my first book was about blood-feeding creatures and and then cannibalism and a a you know a perfectly natural history was about cannibalism in the animal kingdom and then sort of transitioning into human history of it staying away from the sensationalized aspects but but my editor and my agent wanted me to do something a little bit more mainstream and and i initially i thought the heart wasn't for me because i you know, I'm not a cardiologist. I, I said, you know, th- this has got to have been done so many times by, and so well, but they said, well, we'll do some research on it. And what I was able to f- figure out pretty quickly was that was that there were there were dozens and dozens of really interesting stories that that I was able to tell about different hearts and circulatory systems in, in the animal kingdom, and then, like my previous books, transition into uh, into medicine and 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 the ancient history and and modern history of our knowledge and and lack of knowledge about the heart um, so I went from sort of demystifying weird you know cannibalism and, and and vampirism to demystifying some things about the about the heart that you know where did where did this idea of uh, of the heart as being the place where the soul is and intellect where, where did that come from and and then the neat thing about this book was that, you know, when you—I'd written a book about about cannibalism and 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 I'd gotten people who asked me, you know, you you spent or or blood feeding, and they'd go, well, you know, you worked thirty years on vampire bats. How does it keep my grandmother alive for five years longer? And so, pump was a lot more relevant because the the interesting animal stories that I was able to tell. Were, were Had medical relevance, and I and I made sure that I picked really neat creatures, like like Burmese pythons, and 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 um and 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 a tropical fish called the zebra fish, um, and and so that list just got longer and longer, and and the stories got more interesting. You know, probably the one that that I one of the ones I found the most interesting was, unfortunately, in 2014, nine blue whales died, uh, on the ice up off the coast of Newfoundland. And and my friends that work work at the Royal Ontario Museum in in Toronto had specialized in whales, but they really knew very little about the anatomy of blue whales because they have a tendency to sink when they die. Uh, You know, back in the whaling days, these were not the right whales. The right whales were a bunch of whales, species of whales that when you threw a harpoon at them and killed them, they would float. Blue whales were not only fast, but when you killed them, they sank.
1: And so, so Moby Dick was a right whale.
2: you yeah, Moby Dick was the wrong whale for the for the on <laughs> the Pequod. That's for sure. Um, but they were able to 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 make a long story short, they were they were able to collect a heart of of a blue whale that did not sink. It came ashore on a at a small um, uh, on a small fishing town uh, on the coast of Newfoundland called Trout River. And, and it was preserved. They think that it was propped up on the ice for long enough and the, and the temperature, well, the conditions that, that were, were, were cold enough that it preserved the, the, um, the, the organs. So my friends went up there and, and, and this was pretty much a construction operation, heavy equipment, uh, separating the ribs out and four people going into the thoracic cavity to cut the heart free and then push this thing out. Um, but they, it took five years to preserve. And and so I go through that process, and and they didn't really want to put this thing into a, the equivalent of a, gi- a giant bottle of formalin. So they sent it to Germany to be plastinated. And I don't know if you you've, you've ever seen the uh, the the live bodies the, the bodies exhibit. Where, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got somebody dribbling a basketball, and it looks all normal except he has no skin, that type of thing. Um, so this was the largest project that that they'd ever undertaken. And they plastinated this whale heart, and it it turned out to be this incredible, incredible specimen. But it was really surprising. It was a lot. So, so for
1: than- listeners out there who maybe haven't thought about what plastination might be, <laughs> plastination is a technique to preserve a living or formerly liver, living specimens and use them to to study. So many um, students learn anatomy from plastinated. Uh, specimens, which the old method of of studying anatomy specimens was kind of like pickling the former living creature in a nasty substance called formalin, which is really not good for any of us, but it preserved stuff really well. And so plastination is like the new, very safe method of preserving these anatomy specimens, and they can be spectacularly beautiful as well. And so that's what that's what got done to this whale heart.
2: So when they finished it, they were really surprised by a lot of things. There were blood vessels. You know, this is a mammal, right? So you figure they know all these organs, all of these blood vessels. There were vessels that they still don't know what they are. And the heart was a lot smaller than they expected. You know, back when they were getting questioned about, well, how, you know, what's the biggest heart in the world? A blue whale heart. How big? Uh, Size of an SUV. Well, when they really, when they found one and were able to preserve it, it was a whole lot smaller than, than they thought it would be. You know, weighed in at about 400 pounds, but but the example that I use is if you had a uh, if you had a 90 ton hummingbird, uh, rather than a 90 ton whale, its heart would weigh would weigh eight times as much. It would weigh 3,200 pounds. And so, why is that? So I got to explore that you know that question, and it has to do with the fact that a hummingbird's wings beat at about 80 times per second. In order to supply that muscle, you've got to get more blood to pumped out, one way to do that is to have a high heart rate, 1260 beats per minute.
1: Is, is that, that a hummingbird?
2: That's a hummingbird heart Ooh. rate. I think that's about the mechanically, that's about as, as fast as a, as a heart can, can fill, pump, and then refill. Um, and so the only other way to get blood to the, to, the, to the wing muscles is to have a larger heart. So every time the heart beats, it sends more blood out to those muscles.
1: So the whale then must not need as great a cardiac output as a hummingbird does per kilo. If you can even think about a kilo of hummingbird, which a hummingbird is probably what, 30, 40
2: grams. I mean, their heart's beating maybe three to 10 times per minute. And when they dive, maybe even less.
1: Wow. Incredible. So you mentioned that, that the vampire bat story doesn't really help Grandma live longer. So, how does the pump story help Grandma live longer?
2: Well, a couple of the animals that I that I dealt with, for example, um, the and 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 this has become you know you know the the, the tropical zebra fish has become the new guinea pig. You probably know that. Yes. And and, and, and so there's one aspect of it that, one aspect that ties into, into cardiology, into, into cardiac research is the fact that you can snip off 20% of the ventricle of a tropical zebrafish, and it will grow back. A clot will quickly form, um, the, the um, connective tissue will, will, will sort of form around that wound. Uh, and then previously adult myocytes, cardiac muscle cells will start to reproduce. And now you've got this completely healed heart. Well, as you know, that's just not the case with humans. So for example, if we have a heart attack and uh, blood has been uh, uh, denied to a certain region because a a coronary artery has been blocked. So that that tissue that's downstream of that artery uh, can be starved for, for oxygen and nutrients and die. And when it and, and, and when it heals, it comes back as scar tissue, not contractile tissue. So what is it about the, the zebrafish heart that allows it to repair itself where a human heart uh, can't repair itself? So there's a lot of research right now going on to figure out what it is and, and how we might be able to stimulate myocytes in a human to, to go back into their reproductive stage. So we're not talking about growth from things like stem cells. We're talking about adult non-reproductive heart muscle that actually goes back into its reproductive stage again. So how do you stimulate that uh, to, to take place? So, so the, the, the
1: zebrafish heart cells that are adult cells back, go backwards and become immature heart cells and can make a whole, can. F- fix up this damaged heart, where yeah, our heart cells just make a giant area. scar.
2: They seem to migrate to that wound region and, and then go into a reproductive stage. And it's the same thing with with collagen-producing cells uh, that, that that produce the sort of uh, connective tissue um, a scaffold upon which these muscle cells will will be uh, fitting themselves.
1: So let's shift a little bit and you know New Yorkers love the Museum of Natural History. And you know, I like. La- There's probably not a room in that museum that I don't love to go back for, like the 40th time. I- I'm sure my child says, "Oh, do we have to go again, Mom?" But what's it like to work there in that those beautiful turrets and that old sandstone building?
2: It's wonderful. I mean, and I've been there since, well, since I was a graduate student in Cornell. So I've been there off and on um, as a as a first as a, as a as a PhD student when I was doing my, my work on bats, uh, then as a postdoc, uh, then as, and since then uh, as a research associate and, and it's, it's amazing. And I'm incredibly lucky uh, because if I'm not working on my own research, which I haven't done a whole lot recently, once I started to, to write these books, I'm dealing with some of the top scientists in the world. So not only are that, is it a great place to get interviews um, with 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 experts, but it's also a place where where conversations with my colleagues and with my my mentor, nancy simmons, who who still works there, um will give me new ideas about about what to do next and where I might take a, you know either a novel or 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 a nonfiction. That's happened over and over and over again. so, you know, I'll go in and and brainstorm uh, a pilt man with with uh, with with some of the experts in the field that, that for for a book that I'm for a novel that I'm working on. So, um,
1: you know, I think of the museum as having like dinosaurs and stuffed elephants and things. So, how did you? What was there that you could study about vampire bats? Well,
2: th- their collections on the on the fifth floor and, and elsewhere. You know they have a study collection that, that the public that does not get to see. Um, this is when researchers say apply to visit to the museum. They come in and they are able to go to uh, to sometimes very large rooms that have collections. Some of them are are the collections are study skins or uh, which is a way to prep uh, animals uh, mammals mostly. Um, Others are are liquid specimens. They're preserved in, in alcohol, or, or in the old days it was formalin. But you're able to access, in some instances, hundreds of specimens of the species that you happen to be working on. So, so this is yeah, like I said, this is something that a lot of people, a lot of the public, don't realize. You know, when they, they don't get up to the fifth floor and they don't get into these state of the art storage facilities that that have such a an amazing, amazing collection. And I was able to. And, and still, uh, I'm able to access those when I need to look at something
1: so, like hearts, for example.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Um, or, or, you know, bat specimens, for example, mm-hmm. or, uh, or or talk to somebody about leeches, a leech expert or uh, um, as I mentioned, a, a lot of my friends are sort of archaeologists. And, 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 and so I've been doing a, a lot of that. I do a lot of history in my in my book. So I'm I'm in there picking their brains about uh, about historical aspects things that took place at the museum 100 years ago and 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 they still have collections you know i can walk into a room and and here our, our elephant skulls that were that were collected by teddy roosevelt so it's really um something that i never take advantage of and i'm always incredibly grateful that i'm able to be there
1: he, he teddy roosevelt was incredible and I read a book about him and uh, the national parks and how he would save places that were of great importance to the country, partly because he was a naturalist at heart and liked to do things like save elephant skulls and go out west to uh, Yellowstone and the Badlands and things. So um, that book about him and the national parks is a really, really interesting book um, it's almost more about, although his name's in the title, it's almost more about the national parks than it really is about Teddy Roosevelt and how a lot of our national parks actually came to be. Um, he, he was a, he, he was a good person, uh, in, in that sense, he was interested in preserving things like that. So, um, the next book you're doing is on teeth. So I just want to remind our listeners out there that uh, last month we had AMC's dentist on the um, Ask the show, and he and one of our surgeons talked about doing a root canal on a jaguar at the Animal Medical Center. And if you're interested in the teeth x-rays of the jaguar getting the root canal, they're on our website. You just need to put RICO, R-I-C-O, in the search bar, and you can see pictures of RICO's uh, broken He broke one of his big canine teeth. And you can see also on the x-rays why they didn't pull that tooth and why they did a root canal instead, because that baby is big. What you see on the outside of that cat's head is is a tooth that goes way inside that cat's head. I can't imagine what it would be like to pull a tooth on a jaguar. And so Rico got a root canal while he was here. Uh, So we just have a couple of minutes left. What's the best tooth you've heard about so far?
2: Oh, right now, I'm writing the chapter on narwhals. They're kind of interesting.
1: Is that a tooth? That thing?
2: Yeah, it's a tusk. Yeah, um, and and it's it's really neat because it's there's only one of them, or sometimes there's none. So I'm mm-hmm. in the middle of that right now, working with uh, with a friend of mine from the Royal Ontario Museum. But that this is um, you know this is very much like cannibal book and like tooth where 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 i go through the animal kingdom and i look at the evolution of teeth and and i consider teeth to be a a, one of the key innovations that ever evolved in creatures Uh, you know i think that's a no-brainer but to go through the animal kingdom and look at how they're used and now how they're used by by humans you know because they're a very very common fossil uh but then to look at early dentistry things like uh you know like tooth transplants back in the in the 1817 and 1800s, I go into um, George Washington's dentures where there's been a real controversy about the fact that his dentures may have been made of slaves' teeth, and I got to go in and and uh, and and talk to the to the real experts and and get the get the lowdown on on that question. And that's sort of the opening, the opening chapter. That, that's the equivalent of the blue whale part. Is this whole controversy about George Washington's dentures you know are his dentures really
1: at Mount Vernon
2: yeah two pairs of them are he probably had about five pairs in his over his lifetime by the time he was 50 he had no teeth left
1: Uh, I think that was common in in 1776 wasn't it
2: no doubt but it Uh, wasn't the people who had money who could who could actually get dentures made you know, so Some they...
1: people say that that's why he never smiles in any portrait is because he had teeth issues.
2: Yeah, when you see his full set of dentures and and just how unwieldy they are, you can't imagine what it would be like to have that in your mouth. So it's really not a surprise. And and a number of of his um of his portrait artists commented on it. Uh, so you can read them talking about the fact that his face was all swollen from from having these things in there. And, and you know, just one little tidbit here is they were not being able, he wasn't able to use these teeth for uh, for eating. They were pretty much for show. Uh, when you're the most important person in uh, arguably in the world, and, and you need to put, and you need to, to show yourself as the leader of this new country, uh, then you can't be doing it with, uh, you know, with, with no teeth in your mouth. So a lot of this was for, uh, you know, to make him look Uh, uh, to make him look good
1: but not to eat. That is an incredible tidbit. So I want to say that uh, Bill Schutt will be the featured guest on AMC's Next Animal Lovers Book Club. He's going to talk more about his book Pump with me. Uh, it'll be held over Zoom on June 30th at 6 p.m. Eastern uh, Daylight Time. And if you would like to join us and hear Bill and I expand on this conversation about hearts, um, and we also we will take questions from the audience during that event. So all you have to do is go to www.amcny.org backslash use dan events. Registration is free, but you don't get the Zoom link unless you register. So my sincere thanks to Bill for joining me today on Ask the Vet. And I look forward to continuing this conversation.
2: Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure to be here.
1: So much fun. Um, I'd I'd be happy to talk zoo animals all the time. Uh, Thanks. And if you've got a question about your pet's health, just call and leave me a message, and I'll answer your questions next month on Ask the Vet. The toll-free number is 866-993-8267. And stay tuned, because after the break, I'll have the animal news.
0: We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM Stars.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Vet here on Sirius XM Stars Channel 109. And now it's time for the animal news.
0: It's time for Animal Headlines, the biggest animal news from across the world.
1: June is adopt a cat month. And so this story is for all those adding a furry feline to their family this month. Ooh, that's a lot of F's in a row. I have an amazing story for you about Simon. Simon's a beautiful black nearly six year old Bombay cat. For those of you who haven't seen a Bombay cat, Bombay cats are all black. They got black whiskers, black lips and black paw pads. And Simon is extraordinary because he loves hiking, rock climbing, kayaking, biking, sailing, snowboarding, skiing, sledding, and swimming with his dad, JJ Yosh. Yosh adopted the now 10 pound feline in 2016 when he was just a few weeks old and soon started taking him on hikes and other outdoor activities as a way to safely introduce the little guy to the outdoors. Yosha's bond with Simon grew stronger with every experience. And over the last several years, this dynamic duo went rock climbing and kayaking in Colorado, whitewater rafting in the Sacramento River near Lake Tahoe, so beautiful, sailing on Clinton Lake in Kansas, camping and rappelling in the canyons of Death Valley National Park, and even on a road trip from Boulder to the Florida Keys. Yosh carries Simon on his shoulders when he gets tired. So what that means, folks, is that this cat walks until he gets tired, which I don't really think of cats voluntarily walking anywhere. Um, but that's how Simon earned the name Backpacking Kitty. The twosome are always together. Yosh calls Simon his soulmate and guardian angel and says Simon will do anything for a piece of food. If you're interested in following this pair on their adventures through the outdoors, you can follow their adventures on Twitter. Uh, and Yosh's Twitter handle is at JJ Yosh, J-J-Y-O-S-H. And you can see pictures of both JJ and Simon. Our second story today is about another black animal, except this is a black Labrador named Max. He's been hailed as a hero because he helped rescuers find his owner after a three-day search of a wooded 2,700 acre gorge in Bush Park in Katy, Texas. Max's mom, Sherry Nope was recently diagnosed with dementia. But as always, she went out for her daily walk with Max But this time, she didn't come back. For three days, Max never left his mom's side, despite excessive heat and rain. Finally, on the third day, a group of volunteers who were searching for Sherry heard Max barking in the woods and discovered Max and Sherry. Before this ordeal, Max had a sentimental connection to the family because he belonged to one of Sherry's sons who had passed away two years earlier. Now that bond is even stronger, and thankfully, Sherry is doing well, as is hero Max, who got a clean bill of health and a much-needed bath after his three-day ordeal. In our third news story, this is actually my favorite one, even though it's not a cat. A three-month-old baby giraffe got a little pep in her step, thanks to the wildlife health and care teams at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park and a pair of specialized graphite orthotic braces that attach to her front legs. mitsune which means in the forest in Swahili, was born with a disorder that caused the little Jaff's front legs to bend improperly, making it nearly impossible for her to stand up and walk. She now has giraffe patterned orthotic braces made by a local clinic that typically makes prosthetics for humans. This was the first time the company ever made a prosthetic device for wildlife. I'm thinking probably the first time they made a prosthetic device for a giraffe as well. According to Dr. Matt Kinney, who's the senior veterinarian at the San Diego Parks of Wildlife Safari, said that without these life-saving braces to provide support to her legs, Mitsuni's legs would soon have become increasingly more painful and progressed to a point where she would not be able to come, overcome her disability and actually walk happily the treatment with these orthotic braces is succeeding and mitsuni is growing to a healthy weight and height and is settling in with the rest of her herd in the 60 acre san diego zoo safari park if you'd like to see this little mitsuni and her giraffe leg braces just google baby giraffe and leg braces for more information and photos I'd also like to take a moment to tell you about our notes from the ER video. It's an intimate look at the day in the life of a seasoned emergency veterinarian and my colleague, Dr. Carly Fox, who has been a a guest uh, on this show and is also a fellow Cornellian like Dr. Shute. You'll get a sneak peek at some of Dr. Fox's interesting cases, a cat who fell from a high rise building, a dog who got into a scuffle with a porcupine. In 2021, AMC's Emergency and Critical Care Service provided life-saving treatment to 22,000 patients, about 160 patients each day. And all of these patients were treated under our roof by specialists working together across 20 specialties and services. Just go to www.amcny.org and search Notes from the ER. If you have a pet health question, just pick up the phone and leave me a message. It's that simple. I'll answer your questions on next month's Ask the Vet. The number to call is 866-993-8267. And now we're gonna take some calls from our listeners. The first call is from Carly in Nevada. Uh, My name is Carly. I live in Nevada, south of Carson City. I have a little schnauzer who's about 11, 12 years old, D- sweet little dog, She's perfect, but she has itchy, itchy skin and I, about every three months she gets an um, allergy shot, but sometimes it, she needs one before that and I just hesitate to give her that many shots. I bathe her with shampoo that I've gotten from the uh, pet supply that to be good, but And I've even uh, read and put baking soda, just sprinkled baking soda and rubbed it in. It seemed to help sometimes. But do you have any other suggestions? Thank you very much. So Carly, your little itchy schnauzer is like a lot of dogs in New York City right now. Everyone seems to be very itchy and have an ear infection. And that's probably because itchiness in the skin of dogs is a manifestation of allergies. Carly mentioned that her little schnauzer is getting an allergy injection uh, every, about every three months. Now, I don't know what injection that is, but the one we use at the Animal Medical Center is an injection that Pete can be given every month. And I find that dogs often need several monthly injections in a row, and then we can space them out a little bit. So if in fact, Um, the Schnauzer is getting the allergy injection that can be given every month, I would suggest that Carly stick to that monthly schedule for a little while and see if more frequent injections might actually help the Schnauzer be less itchy. The other things to think about are, um, does the schnauzer have fleas? Fleas can make some dogs very itchy. Although, having never practiced veterinary medicine in Nevada, I'm not sure that fleas are that common out there, but they're certainly common here and make dogs very itchy. Shampooing dogs um, can bring some relief, especially if you use a, a gentle shampoo your veterinarian recommends. But um, I don't know if baking soda is wouldn't just simply dry the skin out and make things more itchy. I've never really used that in dogs. So I would stick with what my veterinarian recommended. The other thing to consider is if your veterinarian is stymied as to what to do for the itchy schnauzer, then I would suggest maybe that Carly look for a, a skin specialist, a dermatologist for dogs. And she can find that by going to a website which is um, www.American College of Veterinary Dermatology, ACVD dot o r g and that will list dermatologists and you can search in there for one close to you there are allergy vaccines that can be made for dogs and dogs can be tested for allergies and it may be that that the schnauzer needs some sort of advanced allergy management besides the regular monthly shots that typical veterinarians like me would use. So I hope Carly that helps and that the schnauzer is soon on the road to be mended and not so itchy. Our next call is from Jamie. Hi, the a question is for Ask the Vet. My name is Jamie. I live in DC. Um, I have a dog who's 13 and she's having a lot of issues with her legs not being able to go up the stairs and give out. The vet just uh, diagnosed her with diabetes so we're trying to understand from him what the medicine,
0: um, insulin situation would be, um, question is, is that is the only way why do
1: dogs get diabetes? And I've never heard of that. And will the insulin, will I have to give that to her every day? And will that help her legs, um, improve at all? Thank you so much. Oh, Jamie, I'm sorry that your dog is so sick. I think that the diabetes could be the cause of the weak back legs because when you have diabetes, you don't feel very good. And so you might be weak, not because there's anything wrong with your legs, but you feel lousy. The treatment of diabetes in dogs is to give insulin. And unlike cats who sometimes seem to recover from their diabetes, once a dog is diabetic, it seems to need insulin every day for the rest of its life. Oftentimes it takes twice a day to give insulin to dogs. Um, And oftentimes, a dog needs to eat a special diet to help keep their blood sugar in control. The reason that dogs get diabetes, there's a bunch of different reasons. So one would be that the dog had a disease called Cushing's disease. And that's where the body makes too many steroids. And the steroids make the body resistant to insulin effects. So treating the Cushing's disease will make the diabetes easier to control. Pancreatitis or inflammation of the pancreas can cause diabetes because the pancreas is where insulin is made. And if the pancreas is inflamed, it may not be able to make enough insulin. And so you have to give insulin by injection. Uh, Treatment of of uh, a dog with steroids for a disease can also make them resistant to the effects of insulin and therefore the animal becomes diabetic. Um, And then finally, there are some breeds that um, are predisposed to diabetes and so it may be a breed predisposition. The dog could also be weak in the hind because diabetes will often cause dogs to lose weight. And so, um, this dog could be weak in the hind because it's lost a lot of muscle mass so i think jamie that unfortunately you're going to need to treat your dog with insulin for the rest of their life and so i hope that goes well really most dogs adapt very well to that situation and when we come back from the break we will have news from the animal medical center
0: we're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet. Call now with your pet questions on Sirius XM stars.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Vet. And I have news from the Animal Medical Center. AMC's u Institute for Animal Health Education has created a pet health library so that pet parents everywhere can access accurate and trusted pet health information for free. The Pet Health Library is the leading online user-friendly platform with information verified by veterinary experts at the Shoresman Animal Medical Center. Pet parents everywhere can also attend the Usedan Institute's free monthly virtual pet health events and receive a free weekly newsletter with useful pet tips and information. All our the u events are recorded and are archived on AMC's website. So you can watch previous health events as well as Book Lovers Club uh, all on the AMC website, which is amcny.org. Put events in the search bar. The next event coming up is kidney disease in pets, and that will be held June 15th at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Dr. Navid Edadali, who's the service head of hemodialysis and extracorporeal therapies at the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center, will discuss treatment of kidney disease in pets and help pet parents recognize the signs and learn how to care for their pet who has kidney disease. As always, registration is free and is required for all used down events so that you get the Zoom link. Please visit amcny.org to sign up for Dr. Etta Dolly's Kidney Disease in Pets. At the same time, don't forget that you can sign up to hear my guest from today's show, Dr. Bill Shute, and I talk about Pump, his book on the heart of animals from worms to humans, actually. I'd like to thank Dr. Shute for being my special guest today here on Ask the Vet, and I'd like to thank the listeners and callers, and to everyone who's downloaded Ask the Vet. I really appreciate your support for our podcast. Don't forget, if you have a question about your pet's health, just call and leave me a message on our toll-free number, and I'll answer your question next month here on Ask the Vet. The number to call is 866-993-8267. Don't forget to check us out on social media. Facebook is The Animal Medical Center. Twitter and Instagram at AMCNY. And be sure to subscribe to the Ask the Vet podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next month here on Ask the Vet on channel 109. Thank you and have a great month, everyone.